today's sermon is uh, called The Stones Will Cry Out from Luke 19, 37 to 44. If you, again, have a Bible or phone app, I'd love you to turn there and to see this in context. Peter mentioned, uh, most of you know today is Palm Sunday, and so we're going to preach Luke's account of the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city. Uh, Luke's account includes some unique material, which is kind of exciting. So uh, if you weren't aware, there are four gospel accounts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Luke's material is uh, very similar in some ways to the other three, but also he has some u- unique material that's a little bit difficult to understand, but also pretty important. We'll look at that today. Um, but basically, to set the stage, it is the Sunday before the Friday of Jesus' death, the beginning of Holy Week. Jesus has finally made it to Jerusalem, spending most of his three years of ministry prior to this in Galilee, which is two provinces north of Judea and Jerusalem, so well north. But he's finally made it here, and as he intended, in order to fulfill the prophecy, he wanted to ride into the city on a colt. And so today's passage picks up on him riding into the city on a colt and focuses on the response of the people as well as Jesus' response to them. It's like there's kind of like response to Jesus happening, then Jesus' response to the people. And in one sense, it is a very, I could have titled this sermon kind of a pointed Palm Sunday exchange between Jesus, the crowds, and different religious leaders called Pharisees uh, in this passage. But I want to call it, stones will cry out. This is a really, really cool, important thing Jesus says here about rocks doing things that they can't do, which is sing, obviously, right? But Jesus says, actually, they will. Uh, and so we'll, we'll come back to that. It's actually one of three things I have today. But let me read the passage, though, to start in full. We'll start in verse 37. Again, remember, picture Jesus riding into the city of Jerusalem on a colt on that Sunday before his death. All right, verse 37. As Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that, he had se- that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." All right, so a lot of emotion in this passage, right? There's uh, tons of jubilation. There is weeping on Jesus' side of things. There is indignation on the side of the Pharisees. There is praise happening. There is a strong rebuke and warning and prediction of the future coming on Jesus' side of things. And if you kind of uh, know a little bit about this, the vantage point that this sort of has in salvation history, it kind of makes sense. A lot of, there's a clashing of ideologies happening here. There's a lot of culmination, uh, climax happening here within the story. So it makes sense we would see a lot of different kinds of emotion um, as well as just kind of things happening theologically. And we'll talk about just a few of them today. So uh, three things. The first I want to talk about is when Jesus talks about how these things are hidden from their eyes. So again, Jesus says, oh, that you, even you, to the crowd, to the city, had, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden 
from your eyes. So he's talking about his impending death and resurrection, ultimately, the fact that he is king, um, other things as well, but primarily that. They just don't quite understand. So, but backing up a little bit, as I hinted at before, there are a couple of competing responses to Jesus here, right? Uh, There's a lot going on, but at least understand that. Maybe it was pretty clear to see. There's some competing responses to Jesus here. There's the crowds of his disciples that are rejoicing and praising God for the mighty works that they had seen in him, for all the miracles probably that he had performed even very recently. Then there's the Pharisees, these these Jewish religious elite or, or leaders who are indignant. They're bothered that a messianic psalm was being quoted in reference to Jesus, believing probably that he was towing the line of blasphemy, if not crossing over it entirely. We know he uh, in their eyes, he does do that. It is, it is um, trial, so that's coming. This is kind of like one nudge in that direction uh, uh, based off what's being quoted here with uh, one of the Psalms. The blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord idea. All right. Here's the thing, though. The truth is hidden from both groups. All right? Both groups don't see things totally clearly. Now, obviously, it was better to rejoice than to grumble, so his... his Disciples, more broadly speaking, disciples, not just the 12, but um, the, the broader you know, masses of people that, that were following him in that regard. His disciples had it right. They were singing. Jesus was here to save and to continue to perform mighty works of God in their midst. The problem was they didn't totally understand what his ultimate mighty work would be. They didn't understand what that mighty work, the ultimate kind of, from this vantage point, future ultimate mighty work of God would be. They in the crowds, at least many in the crowds, in their minds, and and Peter prayed this after that last song, essentially, in their minds, they were shrinking Jesus' mission into a moment. They were thinking, the new David was here to save us from the new Philistines, namely Rome, or so they thought. In their mind, Rome was their biggest problem, even though Jesus had clearly taught them that their biggest problem was Actually, their sin. John 8 is very important to understand. Uh, Jesus talks in these terms a lot, but this is one of the clearest ways and times he says it. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is oppressed, chained up, captured by that, by that very act, by that very act of disobeying God, by rebelling against him by harming other people and themselves, all who sin, who do wrong, who think wrong, who act wrong, who just are wrong, all who sin are a slave to sin. So all of a sudden, you can see, if, if there's a perspective, and there certainly was, and there is today, but if there was a perspective that said Rome was their biggest problem, Rome was the new Philistines, Rome was the new Egyptians, Rome was the new Babylonians, these kind of classic benchmark enemies of God's people in the Old Testament. That was the perspective and that Jesus was here not just to heal people but, is, but to be, those things to be signposts of overthrowing politically uh, a, a, a political power that had annexed their land uh, decades prior, then this is a stinger, right? This is a category shifter because all of a sudden being oppressed by other people was not a big deal anymore, at least in reference to sin. Being oppressed by another people group wasn't the biggest thing anymore. Because Jesus says it isn't. Because in this context, they're talking about freedom, being children of Abraham, being free, being free in one sense in that regard. There's a lot to that. But that's kind of what they're saying. But Jesus says to, to sin, 
um, is to be a slave to sin. The biggest problem is, is in here. The truest problem we had was from within, not from without. And, and I said this a second ago, but this is a big deal today too. This is not just something we understand the Israelites to think. This is a really big deal for us today, for Christians, I mean. So these were, you could say these were kind of like types of Christians or at least spiritual Jews that somehow knew the scriptures. Maybe you could say kind of should have known better. They were all in different places for sure, but kind of like us, but we would say as Christians too, certainly if people aren't Christians yet, we would totally understand that, that we should expect that, right, that they wouldn't understand this totally. But I mean for Christians to act as though our biggest problem is outside of us. Our biggest job is to get someone elected or to overthrow a, a certain president or a governor or, or mayor, or our biggest problem is our spouse if we're in a bad marriage, or uh, our biggest problem is uh, a certain type of policy or social agenda, um, because to act in that way is to say we have enemies, out, a way of thinking and ideology that we would perceive maybe is to be unbiblical, so, so in that sense maybe it is a false ideology, a bad thing, but um, but to act as though that's our biggest problem, I think Jesus debunks that. It's not Rome. It's not someone else. It's not a way of thinking. Uh, but instead, it is, it is sin. And um, this was a big-time category-shifting thing that clearly the crowds here, at least some in the crowds, had forgotten. We, we, this becomes more clear as Holy Week goes on, especially, of course, he's crucified uh, and yelled at by some of these same people uh, to be crucified. But that's another story, all right? Here's the second thing, though. The Pharisees share this misunderstanding, but in addition to that, they diminish Jesus by using the word teacher alone. So Now, that title and descriptor isn't wrong necessarily because Jesus did teach. He's known as that. But we know that they didn't believe that he was a son of God either. That's going to become clear during his trial. They end up crucifying him for it, among other things. But There's a reason that Jesus is not known as teacher after his resurrection in the New Testament. Maybe you didn't know that, but Jesus is not known or called teacher after he's risen from the dead. There's one small exception of that right after he's raised by by Mary in John 20. But uh, like in the book of Acts, for example, he's not known as rabbi. He's not rabbi Jesus. He's not teacher Jesus. He is known as Lord or God or son of God or king, uh, but but not teacher. And, And here... We see that the Pharisees' hearts are hard. They have no room for joy or thankfulness or worship because they just reduce him into a moral teacher alone versus the fact that maybe God is here to save us. That's not the way they're thinking, right? But you see how different that is? Like, teacher, stop your disciples from singing and dancing. This is inappropriate. From quoting the psalm in reference to you, you're just a teacher, versus maybe God's here to save me from my ultimate enemy. From, from my sin. Those are very different perspectives that I think shape um, the different attitudes towards Christ here. Even though both are hidden, uh, the disciples have, are, are leaning more into the right approach. They just kind of are still a little bit blind to it. This all reminded me of 2 Samuel 6, 16 to 22. I'm just going to read this. This is from the life of David, who was, a, um, who was the, the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Um, as I read this, actually look for some similarities here between this, uh, this event and Luke 19. Let me just read this. We'll make a couple of comments. But it says in verse 6, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. 
When David returned home, Michal came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls and his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you speak of, I will be held in honor. Super cool story, all right? But a lot of similarities maybe you see between this, of course, and what we just read in Luke 19. There's a lot going on, but, but at the end of the day, a lot of correlation to Jesus. Who remember is David's descendant, so it shouldn't surprise us that there would be a triumphal entry story in David's life as well. That would set the stage for Christ. But, but I think that the big thing to note here, though, is that there is, in both stories, but here there's this perceived rule-breaking that's happening. There is this perceived undignified breach of etiquette in both stories. This one in Luke 19, a cringing at indignity. But also in both stories, the David and Jesus figures, respectively, they're okay with it. The David figure's fine with it. The Jesus figure, or Jesus himself in Luke 19, he's fine with it. They're okay with their eventual humiliation, Christ's humiliation being his death, his his being stripped naked on the cross when he was crucified. They're okay with their eventual humiliation because they know it will lead to their exaltation and their honor. All right? So at least see that this this event was clearly predicted in in and through the life of David, but not just um, what David and Jesus respectively go through in their triumphal entries and then sufferings and declothings and exaltations, but also the way others respond. The McCall figure here is the same as the Pharisees, right? This, this perceived, you know, a breach of etiquette, indignation that they have. And so I, I think even more personally, as you look at this and kind of bringing ourselves into this too, that what's going on here is that the focus is being taken off of us so speaking like for McCall and the Pharisees and us, but we're seeing ourselves in them, the focus is being taken off of us and put on to Jesus wholesale, right? And the reality is prideful people cannot celebrate when the focus is put on someone else. It just can't. The, the, the movement the Bible makes from law to gospel, from old to new, from our works to Jesus' work, it will always sting to the arrogant. and It will lead to gloominess and downtroddenness and even a soft rebuke, um, thinking we know what God wants when maybe, in fact, uh, we, we don't. More on that in, in just a minute. All right, second section is the stones will cry out. So again, uh, 39, verse 39 says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you. So he doesn't, right? He just doesn't rebuke. That's, I know, kind of in the white space, but clearly he doesn't, right? So he doesn't do what they're asking. Uh, I tell, but he says this, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones uh, would, would cry out. Okay. I think there's a twist uh, to what Jesus is, is saying and, and intending here. And that is, stones don't just maybe will, maybe in the future will cry out, but stones actually or eventually do cry out. The stones being us. Stone-hearted sinners. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, church, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual temple, a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, right? 
You, if you're a Christian, are a living stone. Did you guys see the connection? Ambrose said in, in the 4th century, it's not strange if the rocks would respond against their nature with praises of the Lord, since murderers, harder than rocks, also proclaim them. So he's saying, you and I as sinners are worse than rocks. We're harder than rocks. It's more impossible for us to cry out to Jesus than that rock we stepped on before walking in the building today. That's what he's saying. But at least see the comparison. We are called, or if you think of Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 36, I believe, it talks about how we have stony hearts. Stone hearts, same word. That's what's inside, right? That when Christ comes, he'll make it into a heart of what? A heart of flesh, right? It's a soft heart that can actually receive God and, and be saved. All right, so what, what this is saying is Jesus is not just saying then that, that praise is like covering a geyser, that if you cover up the pressure, it will eventually build up and, and eventually it will burst forth from somewhere else in the ground and rocks will praise. He's not just saying that. He's also saying rocks can sing and eventually will sing and that they can do something against their nature, as Ambrose said. He's kind of saying, if these stones were silent, then other stones would cry out. He's saying, I'm here to save the hardest of sinners to make inanimate dead things come to life and to do the impossible, that is, to save people from what truly enslaves them, which as we know, as I talked about today, is their inner sin. So going back to something, we, we talked about this a little bit before, and, and I'm, I want to revisit this kind of from a few angles this morning because um, it's nuanced. I think the same theme comes up in different ways. But, but in terms of seeing a contrast between the crowds and the Pharisees, now with this addition of stones crying out in praise, I, I think that we continue to see this shift from, you know, focus on the self to focus on Jesus and how that changes our countenance and our appearance and our, and our very emotional makeup. As, as human beings. If you think, uh, a lot of you guys know the story of the Pharisees, you've read about them before, but if you haven't, or just, just to remember this, at one point the Pharisees say something similar to Jesus. You know, here they're saying, teach your rebuke your disciples, but uh, at another place, the Pharisees say to Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? Why, why aren't they sadder? Why aren't they harming themselves? Why aren't they denying themselves? And Jesus has a, a big answer for that. His answer is essentially because we're at a wedding, uh, and I'm here. That's why they're not. I'm here. Uh, but that's another sermon. Uh, but it's a similar kind of question, right? Uh, or, or at least statement. Uh, the teacher, rebuke your disciples. I mean, basically in today's passage, it's there's too much dancing and laughing. Tell them to stop, teacher. And, and Jesus doesn't. And of course they have their reasons. They think they're right. They think they're keeping the rules and obeying the scriptures. But to quote Jesus what the problem is, they have failed to understand the time of their visitation. That's the problem. They fail to understand the time of God's visitation to them. They fail to understand that the times, the new time is here. The, the funeral of the Old Testament is giving way to the wedding of the new. Uh, you, you see this actually play out well in Hebrews 12. Listen to this. It's an abridged version. But... Here, the author of Hebrews likens the two covenants or testaments to two mountains. He says, You have not come to a mountain like Sinai, the mountain of the law, that is burning with fire to darkness and gloom and a storm. You have not come to that kind of mountain, Christian, but you have come to Mount Zion, 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels dancing in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, to Jesus, the mediator of a new testament or a new covenant. But do you see the it's not just like, there's so many distinctions and comparisons and contrasts here that we could make if we were preaching Hebrews 12, which we're not. Uh, but you see at least part of the difference is like laughter and non-laughter. It's gloom and no gloom, right? Like it's, it's from gloom to joyful assembly. That, and the reality is the law, the conditionalized covenant of the old, it just doesn't liberate us to dance like the gospel does. It just doesn't. The mountains are distinct. They're different. And the gospel doesn't say go to both mountains equally. It says don't go to the first one anymore. You have not come to Sinai. You have not come to the mountain of the law. You have come instead to uh, the mountain of the gospel. And th- I think there, there's just something about grace that takes the focus off of ourselves so much and puts it so much on Jesus, which in turn leads us to salvation and joy. Not to like literal dancing necessarily. Some might be thinking, I hate dancing, so that's not good news to me. Uh, it's not like Girl dancing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty phlegmatic guy myself, and I don't have a ton of emotion uh, usually. But, uh, but I, I think it's not about personality. It's just, just about where's your heart. It's a litmus test for us. You know, it, it is our spirituality leading us to gloom? You know, and there's, there's a sense to which I think you see here the, the rule followers are, are gloomy, and they're rebuke-centered, whereas Jesus is like the opposite, right? And there's a type of Christianity that's liberated, and I think Christ himself, though, is the crux. That The more we focus on him and the less on ourselves, the more we'll dance and not be worried about a breach of etiquette, in, in a sense, to kind of go back to David, right? Like, we won't care as much about what other people think of us, uh, like McCall through the window, right? These McCalls through the window or, or others who think they know better um, and who focus a little bit more too much maybe on them. Christ as a teacher, uh, stuff to do with our time and our day that we're just not doing in that time. But is worship enough, right? Is Christ enough? Um, is is the, the new mountain of, of Zion enough for us? Or is this good litmus test for us as Christians to kind of see the play, the play off of each other here and how they're not blended but held as, dis, uh, held as distinct, all right? Basically, it's a tale of two covenants uh, in Luke 19, not just Hebrews 12, but uh, in Luke 19, I think, uh, as well. All right. Last section is Jesus wept for the city and temple. So on one level, at face value, Jesus is just predicting the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, which um, was almost 40 years into the future from his vantage point. So um, not going to talk a lot more about this today, but just understand this, this happened. This is partly what Jesus is doing his ability to see the future with this type of accuracy and precision, of course, tells us, among other things, he's more than a man. He's the son of God. And, and yet, the New Testament includes passages like this, not just here in Luke, but the other Gospels, the synoptics especially, not just for the sake of us knowing that Jesus is God, but for theological reasons too. In, in, in fact, following this passage in Luke 19, you guys know what comes right after this? Right after Luke 19, the passage we're in, is when Jesus uh, cleanses the temple. He goes in, he overthrows tables and chairs, and brings literal physical damage to parts of the temple itself. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Or if you think of when he died, in the, in the, remember when he died and the curtain of the temple tore in two? 
That's damage to parts of the temple. Holy parts of the temple are being physically damaged by Jesus, uh, by God through Christ. And, it, and so I think like Jesus is starting to do then, even here, what the Romans would finish in AD 70. Jesus is starting to do what the Romans would finish. He's starting to bring damage to the temple, damage to part of the city that the Romans would finish. And Jesus is predicting this. Like, I'm starting this, but a day is coming when there will be literally no stone on top of it. It's going to be wholesale destruction. Uh, nothing will be left in the city or, or the temple. That's important because I, I think, there again, there's a notable clash of ideologies happening here. So let's come back to this one more time. One thing's being destroyed, another's being built. One thing's being left behind, another's being inaugurated. The Old Testament's coming to an end, the new is about to be established. And one of the ways we see this is in the Gospels, is by way of Jesus saying the city and temple will be destroyed, which themselves were symbols of the Old Testament system. The Bible itself teaches this all over the place. So they're symbolic of the whole system. So when Jesus says it's going to come down, he's saying the Old Testament system that mediated you to God based on what you do. Do this and then you will live, it said in Leviticus 18.15 that Paul quotes in Galatians 3, right? Do this and then you'll have eternal life. Do the law, then you'll live, right? That system is coming crashing down. Jesus starts to put chinks in the armor, fissures in the foundation through his Temple cleansing, and of course through his death, uh, but in AD 70, decades later, this final kind of act, this symbol of, of the old way coming crashing down uh, will, will be realized. That's partly why it's important that Jesus predicts this. Not just a history lesson here. It's not just like prophecy for prophecy's sake. It's, it's theologically important based off what it symbolizes. But check this out. It's interesting what's left in, in the temples and in, in the city's wake, right? Because uh, interestingly, the, the words, as you see here in the two bottom verses, the words stones, again, are used twice, right? Once in reference to the city and the temple, and once in reference to sinners who worship Jesus, who became the new temple of sorts. And so what, what this means is, again, the old temple, the physical one, is coming crashing down, but a new temple is going to be built with stones, but you're the stones, and so that's important, not just because we have this, kind of abstract, right? But not just because we have this idea that now when we gather, Jesus is with us, and, you know, now the temple's spiritual. It's not geographically, you know, centered. It's not centrifugal in that way. But instead, that now our spirituality has to do with oneness with Jesus. The fact that he came to save us out of the temple, tearing the curtain with his death not our traveling to a sacred building and performing rituals and washings and acts of righteousness in order to draw near to God. That's, the, that's why this matters. This is basically saying holiness now has come out of the temple running to us. It's not about you taking a pilgrimage and traveling to a place of holiness, but now you are holy because Christ has made you holy by his presence in your body and your soul. That's the gospel. I mean, if you don't believe that, then you're going to be doing something to bridge that gap, right? If you still believe there's, that's not totally true yet, whatever that perceived distance is, you're going to do something on your, you have to, on your own to sort of make up for that last 10% or whatever you perceive it to be. But if we are the temple, if we are the living stones, if Christ lives within us, this is a new thing. The old temple came crashing down, the new one is us. When we're gathered, 
Jesus is with us. You are living stones, you guys. And now our spirituality has to do with oneness with Jesus based on his shed blood for our sins. Not on traveling to a sacred building. Praise be to God. That is such good news that we can take for granted all the time. Uh, But we need to remember this in our daily spirituality. And that all leads me to this last point, uh, which is, and this is another twist. This passage is full of twists. This last one here is that before the city and temple are destroyed, Jesus is destroyed. Before the city and temple are destroyed, Jesus will be destroyed. And as he says elsewhere, he is the new temple, right? So he... He's the new, his body's the new temple. We're only the temple because he lives within us, right? So there's an important pit stop along the way of us seeing ourselves as living stones. Jesus is the living stone. He is the temple. John 2.19, Jesus says, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and I will raise it up. I'll resurrect it in three days. Very important to see, all right? But here's what this means in light of Luke 19. Jesus will be destroyed before what he says will happen to the city of Jerusalem and the temple therein. In other words, the way the New Testament will be established, the way that Jesus will, quote, do his ultimate mighty work of God that we talked about before among the people, the way he'll bring peace, the way he'll lead stones to cry out, the way he'll free us from oppression to sin is by having happened to him what will happen to the city in the future. That is... To borrow some language from Luke 19 and 2 Samuel 6, to be surrounded by his enemies, hemmed in on every side, which also actually also quotes some of David's psalms, which are prophecies and songs of Jesus ahead of time, torn down on the cross, stripped naked, humiliated before the slave girls after he enters the city, to again quote from David's story. All these things are words that aren't just about the future building, they're about the temple, not just the physical, the spiritual temple of Jesus' body. We in our minds separate these things out. We have clear, demarcated categories, but the Bible doesn't have that all the time. It blends them. It mixes them up so that Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. Then he's saying to us Christians, you're the temple. Then he's talking about the physical temple over here. But there's a reason why all of it's coming up together because it's the overlap of the ages. The old is fading. The new is being established. But here with Christ... Jubilation is giving way to humiliation, like it is at the, in this Luke 19 story, right? Partying and dancing is giving way to Jesus uh, being humiliated, or like David talked about that in the Old Testament, but then led to his honor and resurrection and exaltation. All this, of course, is later this week. We talk about Good Friday and Easter Sunday all the more. This is a preparation for it. He's not just talking about the temple. He's talking about his body. All right, Luke 19, I I said this to start, Luke 19 is an astonishing display of emotion. Extreme kindness, or happiness rather, and jubilation, rocks crying out, seething anger, Jesus weeping, all kinds of emotions. But this is the key right here. If you guys get anything from today, just get this. What Jesus is saying will happen to the city will happen to him first. What Jesus is saying will happen to the city and the temple will happen to him first. And here's the thing. It's the same with you and me. Our stories are not that different. We, like the city, have hell to expect for our disobedience and sin 
But Jesus went to hell already on the cross for us. God, through, though he's right to judge us for our sins, sent his son into the world to bear the same judgment first in your place so it might pass over you. Uh, guys, that is the gospel. If you're brand new to this stuff, the gospel is that there is hell to expect for sin, but God in love says, I will enter into the world and bear that very punishment myself. I'll interrupt it so they won't actually have to experience it. Do you see what he's doing? This is substitutionary atonement. There are two cities here, two temples. The temple and Jesus, the city and Jesus. He's the ultimate Jerusalem, the Bible says elsewhere. He's the ultimate temple. He himself clearly said in John 2, right? They both are destroyed. But this is what Palm Sunday is all about. Jesus entered the city of destruction in order to replace the city of destruction on the cross. He wept for us, but then went to work for us. He wept for us because he loved us, then went to work for us because he loves us. And this is where there's such encouraging good news, but a warning, you guys, is like the city, you will be destroyed or Jesus will in your place. That's the message. Which is it? There are two cities that are destroyed here, right? Jesus and the other city. It's the same with us. Wrath is coming. Will God's anger and his wrath against our sin be poured out upon the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, which is what happens when you believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins, or will it be laid on you in the end? This is, what's hap- this is why this is so somber and kind of terrible, and yet the best news you'll ever hear at the same time, because God loved you so much, he did not withhold his one and only son, but gave him up for us all. Galatians 1 says, gave him up, gave him up to be crucified for us all. And the destruction happening here, the, te- the, the focus on the city, again, it's not a history lesson, guys. It's not just about what happened in AD 70. It's not what it's about. This is ultimately about Jesus' body first taking on the pits, first taking on the rocks being thrown at the wall, first taking on the hemming in on every side, being surrounded by his enemies, First, taking on the humiliation, the misunderstanding, all of that to ena- in his weeping for us to, to enable us to, to draw near to God and, and be saved. So that's the gospel. And, and in, in Luke 19, that's the gospel. That's the good news that, that draws us in. And that ultimately leads us, I think, to jubilation and dancing because this is the mighty work of God. And, and the crowds didn't see it. We miss this sometimes. We think that him healing a leper is the mighty work, kind of, but not really. That's the mighty work, and that's what he came to do for you and me, for the crowds, for the Pharisees here, his enemies, and for us, his enemies, to make us his friends and sons and sons and daughters. That's the mighty work of God. The focus on that is to dance, to, to reduce him to a teacher and a rule giver is to make your spirituality gloomy and Sinai-like, and downcast, and rebuke-focused. So it's a litmus test and a challenge for us as well. You're supposed to feel, we're supposed to feel the tension. There are two testaments in the Bible. There are two responses in Luke 19, two mountains in Hebrews 12. Not one blended, different expressions, two distinct ones. Like, which are we, which are we going, going after, right? And, and I think there's that litmus test, an invitation for us as well, um, 
for the sake of our reorientation, for the sake of our first step into the land of salvation, maybe for some of you in the room. And so um, let me pray, invite the band up for one last song. Jesus, thank you so much, God, for this holy week. Thank you for the gospel today um, that we need so much. Thank you for saving us from our sins and for being yourself, Jesus, the city of destruction. You are the true Jerusalem who was crushed, who was raised to the ground in our place, having people wag their heads at you like they did in Lamentations. Matthew 27 says they went by the cross and wagged their heads at Jesus when he died. Uh, These things aren't coincidences. You took all the curses of the Old Testament, all the curses of Israel's disobedience, all the curses of their failure to keep the law, all the curses of the entire old system on yourself, and through that, you established a brand new system, one based on your grace and love shown to us alone, not our ability to be good before you, not our ability to climb the mountain. So God, help us to come to Mount Zion. Help us to be like the crowds who rejoice. Forgive us for the McCalls in our hearts and the pharisaical reducing of who you are, seeing our enemies as though they're outside of us type spirituality that is so easy for us to to entertain, Um, God. But grow our church, bless our holy week, draw near and help us to focus on you a billion times more than us. In Christ we pray, amen.